You're listening to The Patchwork Girl and Friends. I'm Kendra, and I love having interesting conversations with my friends about art, media, life, the universe, and everything. And that is what this podcast is all about. I am here with my friend Savannah. And Savannah, can we just start out by telling the story about the Christmas? (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) So... I think it's important to note that my family has an obsession with Jane Austen's Pride and Prejudice. The book, the movie, and by movie, I don't just mean one. I mean all of them. And so Christmas, I want to say it was 2014, I bought every single person of my six-person family a different version of Pride and Prejudice. I love that. Can you name off some of the versions you got? (laughs) Absolutely. So... We already own the six-episode 1995 version of Pride and Prejudice, so I bought the 2005 Kira Knightley, the 1940 Academy Award-winning American-style Pride and Prejudice, <laughs> <laughs> Bride and Prejudice, the Bollywood film, the 1985 BBC version of Pride and Prejudice, and Pride and Prejudice, a Latter-day comedy. So that concludes all six versions that this family now owns. I love that. And how did they react? How how did your family take that? Every person reacted a little bit differently. So my sister, who carries maybe as equal of an obsession with it, she was ecstatic because this meant that there were six versions that she could steal. (laughs) I think all the boys in my family were a little bit like, what's going on? (laughs) But everyone was willing to watch. So we ended up, I think, watching Bride and Prejudice that night. Just reminiscing about all of our Pride and Prejudice glory days. Oh, that's fantastic. So I want to know, what is the first version of Pride and Prejudice that you remember seeing? The 1995 version. That was something that my family has watched. At this point, we don't watch it every year anymore. But growing up, we watched it every single year. And we would invite people into our family to spend six hours watching the series with us. That is a big commitment. Definitely. You have to be a true friend to be led into this world. (laughs) (laughs) For myself, I grew up with the 1980, what is it? 85, 1985 version. And I was quite young when my mom got into it. And I remember enjoying watching it, but I didn't really understand what was going on until I got older. (laughs) So what are some of your first impressions? Did you understand this story? What were some of your favorite parts? I think there were, you know, obviously there were a lot of things that the language just doesn't necessarily translate to a child. You know, Mm -hmm. uh, something that I'm thinking of specifically is that she's tolerable, I suppose, but not handsome enough to tempt me. And the not wanting to be with a girl who was slighted by other men, all of that, none of it made sense. So it's like, okay, he doesn't want to dance with her. That's kind of yes. what my child mind comprehended. I think, I think it's a story that's easy to follow, even if you don't understand the words that are happening. Oh. Yes, I agree. It, especially as a movie, it's, you can visually see how people react. Mm-hmm. Even though there's so much subtlety to the language, you can figure out the the broad strokes absolutely I think it was funny for me getting older 
and I watched it again and, and, and I was like, oh, wait a minute. They're insulting each other. <laughs> it sounds so nice, but once you understand the words, you it's woo, burn. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I think it's something, especially with that, is the Bingley sisters. Mm-hmm. Because you can see you can see that they okay, they're villains. I get that. But I think once you start to understand that language a little bit better, you're like, oh, that was that was really just catty. She's that was a real, mm-hmm. that was a deep cut. I understand why Lizzie's hurt. So since you have seen so many different versions, what is the worst version oh, that you have seen? My goodness. Pride and Prejudice, a latter-day comedy. And can you elaborate <laughs> on that a little bit? <laughs> Happily. I just want you to start imagining in your head, like a 2003-2014 comedy. Oh. Full of cringe <laughs> Full of embarrassing moments, and then apply that to Pride and Prejudice because that is what the film is. How did they translate some of those culture things? Because a lot of Jane Austen is about class and about marriage and all these social things that we don't necessarily have today. Yeah, so in that film in particular, you had a, the rich. I think he's a publicist because she's trying to be a writer, the equivalent of Lizzie. Um, so someone who's in a position of power over her. And you've got this aspiring writer who is Lizzie, who is living in an apartment. So she doesn't have sisters in the film. It's just her roommates. So she's living in this crowded apartment. And that's to show the difference in class. So he's rich. He's got his own place. She doesn't have an established job that's in her, career, in her field of study. And she's living with four other roommates. In your opinion, why is this the worst? <laughs> it's the it's the cringe factor, which I think in some ways there's a lot of cringe in the story itself of Pride and Prejudice, even when it's set in the 1800s. Of uh, the Netherfield Ball, for example, uh, this is just on steroids. This is 2003 cringe on steroids, where you've got people mixing up their words, and it's just the way that it's been filmed. You feel it so much. It's just such a strong feeling of, oh, no, I can't look at this. I can't watch this film right now. I'm getting so much secondhand <laughs> embarrassment. I just have to walk away. <laughs> um, thanks for the warning. I don't think I'm ever going to watch that. Um, as of now, I think the worst version I have seen is half of the musical that we saw together. Oh, my gosh. That was, that was horrible, too. But he liked her eyes. <laughs> He liked her eyes. I am fascinated by that musical because it went so fast. Yes. The dialogue was really snappy and mostly from the book. Mm-hmm. So it was, you know, pretty nice. And then it would just stop for these songs. And I don't even know what style they were going for. Oh, no. None of the, none um, of the songs seem to be working together. And, and the wording and the songs was really erratic ending with um after they first meet mr darcy and elizabeth mr darcy there's there was like that just loaned guitar strum yes and then he goes i like your eyes <laughs> oh oh man Did- I believe the um, One Direction boy band came up as we were trying to describe that one. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, that was definitely an experience. I think something that 
that was interesting and that was what they chose to make the songs about because it wasn't the situation it wasn't I feel like in, you know most of the time in musicals you've got kind of a story that comes from the songs where they're taking a scene and they turn the scene into a song mm. and they didn't choose to do that in this musical and I think that's part of the reason why it seems so odd was they just took a line from the book and turned that into a song so it felt really yes. abrupt of like okay we're in song now now that the song is ended we can continue the story yes that's exactly how it was and it was really disorienting mm-hmm. yeah so i wish you know i i would love to just talk to them and be like okay let's let's do this again yes <laughs> well I, I kept thinking like how popular is this how did this get made who wrote this <laughs> yeah and and I've seen um, Pride, Prejudice, and Zombies. So, <laughs> but as I mean, I think that from what I understand from you, that seems to be a great adaptation. It is. It's well, how to describe it? It's very campy. It's obviously not supposed to be taken seriously, but um, there's there's a style of cheesy movies that I call Cool Whip. If it's fake and not healthy for you and but it it's it's fun and it tastes good (laughs) (laughs) and i would say pride prejudice and zombies is total cool whip it it has the the cast is really great and as i've told you the guy who plays mr darcy i don't remember the actor's name but he is one of my favorite characterizations of mr darcy on film he's great and the it's it's just goofy seeing what they do kind of clever how they do it and then it kind of just dissolves in the end into a mess but it's okay it's it's fun to watch (laughs) (laughs) what are some of your favorite adaptations that's a great question so I think the 1995 one has a special place in my heart especially as it was the first Mm. one that I watched I think it really follows the Mm. book well I had the opportunity to go to England. I went to Limehouse, which was where they filmed the Pemberley scene. Oh, yeah. Wow. And that was just an incredible experience to walk around the grounds of Pemberley. Oh, and- <laughs> it wasn't just- they had this little desk set up where you could write a letter from Pemberley and send it off. So it was just the outside of the of the house that they used as the set for that. But just a really incredible experience that tied together what I had watched and my actual life. And so that was really great. And so that has definitely made it have a very special place in my heart. I think another version that I really just like, which we had a conversation about this the other day, there's a time travel version of Pride and Prejudice. And I really love it. And it's called Lost Lost in Austin. And I think part of the reason why, I, I mean, many reasons to love this film on, or I guess it's, a, it's an episode series as well, I believe. They really were able to to hone in on different components of the book and not forget things, even with the time travel of so Lizzie, or our modern day girl switches places with Lizzie, and so she's a big fan of Pride and Prejudice. Has a Colin Firth cutout, you know, obsessed, <laughs> <laughs> and just to kind of see that, I kind of I felt like I could almost put myself in her shoes. Like, oh, I would do that. Oh. Yeah, mm-hmm. I want Mr. Like, mm-hmm. okay, Mr. Darcy, come out of the lake because that's what happens in the film, and it has to happen here. <laughs> yes, and I, well, I love how I guess it was the bit of wish fulfillment of like if you were able to go into your favorite story, 
how would it be? And I, I feel like they did that so well in how much she really does enjoy it. And then, of course, there are things that are really hard that she had never mm-hmm. thought about. I feel like it's a very thoughtful story for being a Pride <laughs> and Prejudice time travel story. Yes. <laughs> so well executed. Yes. Yes. So much better than I, I feel like it could have been so bad Mm -hmm. and it wasn't. And that's what makes it so endearing. Yeah. So what are your, so your favorites? Cause you've watched several different versions Um, as well. I have. My favorite is the one I grew up with, which is the 1986, 85, the 1980s one. It's shorter than the six hour Colin Firth version Um, So they do cut some story elements and it's the production value is actually quite low. It looks like, like the lighting is pretty bad and it sometimes feels like it's a play that's being filmed Um, and the costumes are kind of quirky, but I love the acting. I I really like the Mr. Darcy. Uh, His name is David Rintoul. And I really like Lizzie and I really like Catherine DeBerg. And I feel like in other versions I've seen um, many times, Lizzie is great. I could be stoned for this, but I do not care for Colin Firth as <laughs> Mr. Darcy. How dare you? I, Insufferable I girl. to abide me. <laughs> I really like David Rintoul because he, um, and possibly because of the bad lighting, he is very, very tall. And he, his eyes are kind of hooded in dark. And I think that just really captured the proud, mysterious man in the ivory tower that I really like. And then I have talked with a couple different people about why I really like Catherine DeBerg in the 1980s version. Uh, in most other versions, she's this kind of dowagey old lady who's just really prim and proper. And, and in the 1980s version, she's a little bit younger. Like she's, I would say, you know, maybe 50s or late 40s mm-hmm. or something. Or yeah, like 40s or 50s. And she plays it like an aging actress. Uh, I think of there's this famous movie called Sunset Boulevard about this aging actress in Hollywood and she's just trying to relive her glory days and she's kind of delusional. She keeps thinking that she's going to be accepted back into the public eye as being a, a darling again. And I feel like that's how Catherine DeBerg plays it in the 1980s version. If she dresses really stylishly and she just has this air of glamour around her, even though, and she says these outrageous things and she's not that great. <laughs> But no one dares question her because she's rich. I think that that really, I feel like that would go along with some of the things she says. Like when she talks about wanting to, like if she had ever played the piano, she'd ever learned to play the piano. She would be a true proficient. That that kind of goes along with that social kind of glory days, trying to relive that. Like I I am great. And I would have been great at this too. 
Yes, yes, exactly. So I, uh, especially after watching multiple versions, that piece has solidified as being, uh, I think, a really precious piece for me. <laughs> Speaking of Lady Catherine, I don't know if you want to go on the side trail of the 1940s version and what they did with that. <laughs> yes. Oh, please, please, um, for our audience, just give a brief overview of how the 1940s version Works. Yes. So <laughs> I think the important thing to keep in mind is that this came out in 1940, which was the year after Gone with the Wind had come out. And you can see that. And it shows. <laughs> um, specifically in the fact that they're all wearing Victorian style dresses. The 1800s don't exist, apparently. Or in terms of the 1810s <laughs> of when the story is actually taking place. Everyone's in huge, like, southern bell skirts. <laughs> It's an experience, and I love it. It's very Americanized, mm-hmm. the way that they deliver the lines, kind of certain comedic elements to it. And importantly in this is how they depict Lady Catherine at the end of the story. Because she, when she goes to visit Lizzie in her traditional version, she is angry, and she's upset, and she doesn't want her to marry Mr. Darcy, or to, and she wants her to absolutely refuse that she ever will. And those feelings are real. In this 1940s version, this 1940s American version, this is all a setup to see how much Lizzie actually loves Mr. Darcy. But, and it's funny, it's very compressed. And I I feel like it just kept getting bigger (laughs) and weirder because they're all at the house. And then suddenly um, Lydia and Wickham show up. And then... They're still there. No, no. The Collins yes. are already there. So the Collins are there. Lydia and Wickham show up. And then Lady Catherine de Berg shows up. And it's just kind of over the top. And, and tell them what happens when Lady Catherine leaves. Are you talking about when she, she leaves? And outside of the house, Mr. Darcy is there talking to his aunt. Ah, how's the conversation? And she, as she responds to her nephew, she must really love you. <laughs> and that she approves of this union and, and that she loves her spirit. And then Mr. Darcy goes in and then and and they also add in that weird twist about how Lady Catherine threatens to take away uh, Mr. Darcy's inheritance right. or something. Uh, so there's like this weird financial stakes <laughs> that are not in the book. And and then it's weird. It's like Mr. Darcy knew that she was going to do that. And it's like yeah, they were testing, testing her. Yeah, they were testing Lizzie's love. And so he goes in and she and they say they love each other. And then Lizzie is all concerned. But what about your aunt? She threatened to take away your inheritance. And he goes, oh, no, it's fine. She thinks you're great. <laughs> but I, I'm paraphrasing. But, you know, <laughs> it was just like, oh, she loves a spirited woman. Like. She had someone to challenge her. She's so used to everyone being so obliging. So she appreciates having someone to challenge her. Which I feel like was a very American thing to do. (laughs) I don't know why that feels American to me, but it feels like Mm -hmm. kind of a a culture stamp on that. The the idea that he could lose everything for love. Yes. Yes. She likes how feisty you are. That I, that's a very just yes 
an American thing, but then also at the end of the story, you you end up, they walk into a room, so Jane and Mr. Bingley are already together, we've got Darcy and Lizzie <laughs> who are now together, Lydia and Wickham, obviously, but they walk back into the house, and Mary's playing piano with some guy who I don't recognize, who's apparently, <laughs> I don't think you, there's a love connection there, and Kitty's off walking with Captain Denny. <laughs> and there's a pretty little bow on everything. That was so unexpected, too. Um, like, again, the whole ending of once it's revealed Catherine de Berg's true motives, we were all looking at each other like, wait, did that just happen? And then they open the doors and, yeah, all the other girls have miraculously uh, acquired lovers as well. And he's like, wow, that... It was something. That was something. It was fun, though. That was a fun film. You know, for being so weird and American, I do feel like it was well written. Like it was better than some of the other versions. Yes, without seen. a doubt, it's better, better than, than the musical, musical. Better than the latter day comedy. <laughs> In some ways, you know, I think I enjoyed it more than the Kira Knightley version. Yeah, I want to talk about the Kira Knightley version um, because I feel like that is the one that brought it into mainstream. Mm-hmm. I don't know the mainstream spotlight. How do you I'm feel a, about that one? I'm not the biggest fan of it, and I'll tell you why. So, Jane Austen, one of the biggest things about Jane Austen is that she was highly criticized for this kind of happy-go-lucky depiction of life. That she didn't show the hardships of life, and that was part mm. of the charm of her stories. And the 2005 version, mm. something that they tried to implement was to show what life would have been like to show the hardships of the Bennett family. And I think that took away a lot of the charm of the story. I did not know that about that movie. I've, I saw it a long time ago and I don't remember much about it. Yeah, I can think there's one specific, I mean, they don't, they don't like over dramatize that, but you know, they have Lizzie walking through mud around chickens and just showing that the the family is not, you know, showing the, the, the hardships of the Bennett family, who, while Mr. Bennett is a gentleman, they are not well-to-do. Mm-hmm. And and so I know that that was an important element to the film for the director. I think there's something so fun about the story in the way that everything else about life doesn't seem to matter. The only things that matter are the social aspect and falling in love and just the whimsy of it all. And now it's time for a random quote from our guest. So something that I feel really, it just helped me kind of stay focused in school was Roald Dahl's quote, if you have good thoughts, they will shine out of your face like sunbeams and you will always look lovely. I think that just really helped me to to stay prioritized on thinking about how the way I'm thinking and what I allow myself to really rest my mind on affects me as a person as a whole. How do you connect with this story? I think that that's, that, that element of charm is something that really does connect it to me to it is I think we all long for, for an escape and to kind of see mm. that things, you know, even if our first perceptions don't aren't what we want, but it's, things can change, that people can change. And I think that's the, a big driving factor of the story is you've got the pride and the prejudice, you know, the reason why the, the, the title is the way it is. 
and you can see these characters transform because of each other because of their care for each other and their mm-hmm. understanding of the other person even throughout the the Wickham Darcy Lizzie side plot of Lizzie's original perceptions of Wickham are good and he she thinks he's noble and that he has good intentions and then as she gets to uncover that through Darcy's letter her perspective changes and I think that as a reader or as a as a viewer we get to kind of experience okay you know it's okay if our original perception wasn't the truth because think look at how much better this is look at how much better Mr. Darcy is than he was before and you know she could have been stuck with Wickham but because she was willing to change her opinion and was willing to see what was actually going on. Mm. She got her Mr. Darcy. Which character do you identify with the most? I think that's an ever-changing thing for me. I think as a kid, I I recognized that I was maybe a little more spirited like Lydia. But obviously I was a little... I, I had my head on my shoulders maybe a little, <laughs> a little tighter. Yeah, I do not see you no. resembling Lydia. But I think there were elements of I remember growing up, the thing that, <laughs> the line, especially just the way the actress portrays it in the 1995 version of when she wants to go to Brighton, like, I want to go to Brighton. And she just kind of like throws her fist down, but that was kind of the staple of like, I want to do this. I want to have this opportunity. And, you know, as a younger sibling, <laughs> I'm the youngest of four, um, you know, having, mm, you know, okay. my siblings had opportunities yeah. that I didn't, and I could see that with Lydia. So it wasn't so much the mm. running away with Mr. Wickham that I saw with it. I saw the hardships that Lydia was facing because she was trying to create her own identity, but she was behind these four other sisters who were unmarried who she kind of, there's an element of, you have to wait for them. You have to follow in their footsteps. You can't be an individual. And I don't think I broke the mold as much as Lydia did (laughs) but you know (laughs) those feelings but those feelings you could identify that makes a lot of sense actually and so I mean I think now that I'm I'm older and I'm not in that position anymore I can identify a little bit more with the older the sister like Jane and and Lizzie and but I think I think there's always an element of having a little bit of everybody in the film and understanding or in the book, understanding where everyone's coming from that has really taken me out of identifying with just one person, whereas before I really did just kind of, I, I understood Lydia, and I understood Jane, and I really didn't understand Lizzie, um, because Lizzie mm. was just so hard on all of them. <laughs> yes, she is. And so I think that that played a big role in not necessarily identifying with the heroine of the story, because, you know, she would get irritated with people. I was like, why are you getting irritated with them? They're just living their lives. As I rewatch or reread the story, I understand Lizzie's point of view as well. Where she's kind of the one feeling like she's keeping the family together. Feeling like she's having to handle her mom and her sisters. And as sweet as Jane is, Jane's not really playing a big role in her sister's lives as much as Lizzie does. And, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. feeling that social pressure and recognizing the moments of embarrassment that are happening at the Netherfield Ball because of her sister, because of her dad, because of her mom, and having to carry all that weight with her. And that is then pushed on to Mr. Darcy because she's carrying all this weight and then projecting that onto him a little bit. I think it's refreshing that there's uh, 
a story with so many female characters and mm-hmm. they're, they're all pretty interesting and unique and different and not all of them yeah. are catty. <laughs> I, I even really, I really like the relationship between Charlotte and yeah. Lizzie. I think that's Charlotte is a really interesting character. Uh, as I grow older, I think the more interesting she gets of the choices she makes. Cause uh, when I was a kid, it's like, Oh yeah, she's the lady who marries the weird guy. And then I hit a certain point and it's like, wait, why does she w- marry the weird guy? Like, why does she make that choice? That sounds awful. And then coming to understand, you know, her personality and kind of the times and how this is right, a especially pretty a, good in option book, for she's her. 27. So she is, she's six years older than Lizzie is. Right. Yeah. Especially That's at that significant. time to not be married and to not have kids yet. So in a way, even though to my perspective, it's kind of sad because she marries this buffoon guy. But in a way, she does get a happy ending, which is kind of mm-hmm. unusual for someone in her yeah, situation. Yeah, she has a secure household. She, you know, he's got a secure job. He's got an inheritance that's coming his way. They, they have, have social um, <laughs> ties. They have connections. Yeah, well, I mean, I mean, I think even Charlotte's line about you know the security and marriage isn't guaranteed, but you can see that that's what she's seeking, and and ultimately that's what she gets. Now, um, here's something that I've. I talked about with my mom a little bit of it's really fun watching Elizabeth Bennett and Mr. Darcy fall in love, but I don't quite understand the um, obsession with Mr. Darcy because I don't think I would <laughs> want to marry him. That's understandable. I, I'm, in the, I'm on the same page as to you there. <laughs> because he seems I, I don't know and and maybe this could also be some of that weird backlash of <laughs> I don't like Colin Firth as Mr. Darcy so when when I hear other girls gush about you know how romantic he is and now I wish I could marry Mr. Darcy the Colin Firth version or as like well he's kind of grumpy and he doesn't <laughs> like to dance and obviously he's really proud I don't know it's it's just a really interesting thing to me of I enjoy watching them fall in love, but I did make this decision at some point of like, but that is not the kind of mm-hmm. relationship I think I want. Yeah. <laughs> I think what you're saying about he, he is proud and that's the majority of the story and that's what we see of him. And we do see that transformation, but it is a little bit, it's at the end, you know, yes. I, I think one element of the, the, the 1995 version is you do see some of the change happening. I think about mm, when... This is true. When Lizzie comes to Pemberley and she's with her aunt and uncle Gardner. And he he's like, oh, do you want to come to dinner? Like, do you come over, please? You know? <laughs> how, how's your family? And how, how are your sisters? You know? And that you just see that this is such a, an attitude change from when he proposed to her. And how distant he was and how entitled he felt for mm-hmm. her and to have her heart because you I'm mm-hmm. rich you should want me you'll never get another chance like this and her refusal makes him be more introspective and to see that he wasn't being kind and we you know we haven't seen the kind older brother that he was before who had to go and basically rescue his sister from you know social becoming the social pariah by being with Wickham at 15 mm-hmm. and so you know, he's carrying 
that Britain and it, it was showing and he felt pride and he had reasons to in some ways, but the way he was reflecting his pride was hurtful. And so being able to see that he is still, he's proud of who he is, but no longer thinking of himself as being better than Lizzie or her family. The way he looks at her when she's playing piano, you're like, oh, he's in love with her. Yes. Well, and I I think it's also kind of interesting how at the beginning, um, Mm -hmm. he is in her world and he judges her family and all their weird problems and then and then when she goes to visit charlotte and she's with his family yes. and Catherine deberg and kind of sees <laughs> their problems and I, I i've always kind of wondered if that's also what kind of changes him a bit is suddenly he's in the hot spot and partly why they can make it work is they've yes, seen the I worst love that of both of their families. I love that you made and they that, still care for each other. Observation because that's so true. Because that is an awkward experience. That whole lady when she's at the Debergs, that you're it's so it's an embarrassing moment. Yes, and it, it's just so interesting of like on the the awkwardness on both sides of the social class of like at the beginning you're. You think, oh, you know, her family's poor and they're just, you know, on, they're not part of correct society. And then you go to society. <laughs> and you, well, that's not that much better. <laughs> it was really interesting in the 1940s version. I think Mr. <laughs> Darcy was, was too likable. What a great because guy. <laughs> <laughs> he was. He was. You almost felt sorry for the guy. I don't know. I feel like that was a a flaw in the screenplay writing of he says he says the offending thing about Lizzie not being handsome enough to dance with. And then she gets all offended. And then because they squished everything together for time constraints, he immediately goes to her and asks her to dance. And then after that, he's like a sad puppy dog following her around and trying it's to get so her to true. like him. I felt like even even in the proposal scene, I was like, oh, but he's he's not that bad of a guy. <laughs> like, like, you should really take him, though. He's really right. right. <laughs> Elevated with the, the Lady Catherine de Berg scene of, oh, yeah, no, she loves you. Go for it. <laughs> and you're like, oh. So yes. Cute. That was such a weird version because it was so radically, it changed some mm-hmm. things, yeah. in my opinion, radically, but then was still pretty good for what it was. Yeah, it was, it was, a, it was really sweet. It was, it was. Now I'm assuming you've read the book. I have. And do you have any thoughts about the book that wouldn't necessarily be covered in no, I think a lot of the of them, movie like, versions, especially when you talk about the nineteen eighty five version, it's really accurate to the book. Um, and I think something there's not a lot missing. I think having watched all these different versions, you kind of get a very well rounded view of what was happening in the story, and it, it is really accurate to the book. I think one element that that they don't really cover is the after the wedding scene. You know, in in the book, they talk about how mm. how. Lydia was allowed into Pemberley, but Wickham never was. And, you know, things like that, where you still see, okay, that was never, hmm. that was never okay with hmm. Darcy. He never accepted Wickham into his family, but he was willing to accept Lydia. And it's not necessarily an element that's, you know, crucial to the story, but it does, 
it, it rounds out the characters and okay well lizzie was really mad at lydia but clearly she's still inviting her to pimbley and wants her to be a part of her life that's interesting i've never read the book so i actually didn't yeah. know that that's so i mean cool. i don't think that it i think if you're able to watch one of the series reading the book isn't necessarily a must do but i think there are just little elements like that and again like we were talking about before with the Kira Knightley version, seeing how she really omits a lot of the hardships of life, which is why people like Mark Twain really didn't have a lot of respect for Jane Austen mm. because it was, it was mm. chiclet. Yeah. And there's nothing wrong with yeah. that. There's a lot of fun in that. I think that it is an important piece of, of literature and of experience of sometimes it is fun to just go away where mm-hmm. they're happy endings so that brings me to why do you think pride and prejudice has just stayed so relevant and so popular despite you know we're we're in a completely different kind of culture and a lot of stories from that time we don't even know what they were but this one has remained and is still popular why reason that that is is kind of in part with what i just said of she didn't focus on life, like the lifestyle of them. And because of that, she focused on character and mm. on storytelling of their thoughts and perceptions. And those things, they transcend time. We feel the same way that people felt, obviously, in the 1800s. And so we can read about this misinterpretation of actions or someone feeling prideful. And we can connect with that. We can, we can really put ourselves in those shoes, whether it's you know, talking about the relationship between Lizzie and Mr. Darcy or like what I was talking about earlier about Lydia's relationship with her older sisters because Mm -hmm. she didn't Mm -hmm. focus on, on the material items or the situations around them. I think we were, I think the reader and viewer is able to, to focus on connecting with the characters. And people really do. What other Jane Austen stories First and foremost, I have to say Emma. I love Emma. Mm, me too. <laughs> one of my favorite stories. I um, Emma. I, I think just the fact that Emma doesn't actually match me, but just kind of wishes people together and pushes them and is like, you should really do this. But I'm not going to actually do anything to like make this an official <laughs> pushing. I'm just going to push the idea. Like, you should like Frank Churchill. Look, he's attractive. Look, he yes. you from something. Like, Frank Churchill is a great guy and not recognizing her own feelings because she's so preoccupied. I think there's such an element to that that's just so relatable. That was actually my nickname in college was Emma because of the book because I would kind of wish people together and I'd be like, you know, you should really, you should really go for that. But I didn't do anything to actually match make. I would just encourage feelings. (laughs) Well, maybe next I would time love to. And we I'm a big could Clueless talk about fan, Emma. Which, if you've watched it, that is based off of Emma. Then we must. <laughs> okay, we must talk about Emma then. So thank you, Savannah, for sharing your thoughts about Pride and Prejudice. So I love chatting with you. Thank you for listening to the Patchwork Girl and Friends. And thanks to all my lovely Patreon supporters. You are awesome. Thank you for listening to The Patchwork Girl and Friends. You can help make the show better by supporting me on Patreon. My Patreon supporters get access to cool benefits like early access to commercial-free episodes and behind-the-scenes features. Just look for Patchwork Girl Productions 
on Patreon.com. Next time on The Patchwork Girl and Friends. You have diff- several unique and different styles, mm-hmm. and I feel like each one is a different part of you. I, I could gush about <laughs> my life in comics for a long time. Um, but the, uh, there are days that I would draw for almost 10 hours because it needed to be perfect. <laughs> Even just a small dip into creativity is an adventure. Now I need to be making comic content and possibly plugging into Comic-Cons.